If you have a Bible, grab it, open it to Psalm 73, or open your, your Bible app, or you can search it online, reading out of the NIV. This morning, we begin a short series through the rest of our summer looking at select psalms from the Old Testament. The book of Psalms is a collection of, of psalm, uh, songs and poems that capture all the, the spiritual highs and lows of life and helps us direct them into the presence of God. So in reading them, we learn this beautiful balance of honesty and reverence. Some of us are really honest, not really reverent. Some of you are like super reverent, but not really honest. You know, we need to be both honest and reverent, honest about what is going on within us, but then learning of how to bring that into the presence of God. The Psalms are so helpful in that, and they're so good for us. They are beautiful, they're powerful, and they're an important part of our diet as a community. And today, to kick it off, we look at one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 73, and I believe it also serves as an important bridge from what we learned in the book of Jonah. We'll learn a little bit in this Psalm. So let me read Psalm 73. We'll read the text and we'll pray together once more and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Let's read the text. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. 
I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, may your spirit shine a light on any ways of thinking or attitudes of the heart that are blinding us to all that we have in Jesus Christ. Would you open our eyes to see anything that needs to be removed in the way that we're looking at our own circumstance or the way that we're looking at other people? And I pray that the result of that is you do surgery, as it were, on our hearts, that we would experience healing and freedom and fresh perspective even today as a result of being in your presence and looking at your word. Would you change us, God? And if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus, we pray that today they would put their faith and their trust in him and experience what salvation is for all eternity. Speak to us today, we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, it's been said often that we live in the stories that we tell ourselves. Whether you're about to enter into an interview or present a pitch for your work, or you're going to meet new parents at your child's school, chances are you tell yourself a story. Now, for some of you, it might be a more positive one. It's like the pep talk that you give to yourself in front of the mirror or that you mutter under your breath as you're driving in your car. You might say something like, I've got this. I'm the answer they've been waiting for. I'm the resource they have not yet discovered. I'm the connection they haven't made. Wait till they see what I have to offer. However... There are other times when we tell ourselves a different story, and maybe we're more familiar with these. You didn't get the job. Your idea was rejected. You were not invited to the social event, even at church, and the other parents at your kid's school shunned you. In these cases, chances are you tell yourself a different story. It's the script that you rehearse in your mind as you're leaving or going to the event or before you send the email, make the phone call, or send the text, you say to yourself, if they really knew what was good for them, they would have taken my ideas. If they were really friends, they wouldn't have left me out. If they were good parents, they would recognize that I am a good parent. I'm underestimated, unappreciated. I'm a wounded victim. These stories affect the choices that we make each and every day, and that is why they matter. So if the story we tell ourselves is toxic, then our lives will become toxic. But if the story we tell ourselves is true and redemptive, then our lives will become true and redemptive. Well, here in Psalm 73 we are given a glimpse into the story that the psalmist was telling himself. But what begins as a toxic story turns out to be a redemptive story. So how did he get into that bad place? And what wasn't that brought him out? And how is Psalm 73 both a warning for us 
and an encouragement to us. Now, this psalm is referred to as one of the wisdom psalms. There are different types of psalms. There are psalms of praise and psalms of lament. This is a wisdom psalm. Psalms that teach us life lessons, true self-awareness and God focus. But it's not written by the famous King David of ancient Israel. This psalm is written, as you can see in the heading, by Asaph. Asaph was in charge of the music for all the corporate public gatherings of Israel. He was, in fact, appointed by King David. And so it begins exactly in the way that you might expect a church gathering to begin, with a good one-liner opener from the worship leader. He says in verse 1, The Lord is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You can imagine a, a modern worship service, and the person gets on the mic and says, God is good, and the congregation says, all the time. You're like, yes! Woo! We're in church, people. But then imagine... It takes a turn. And that's what happens in verse 2. Surprisingly, Asaph makes some pretty raw statements that you wouldn't expect in this kind of environment. He says, God is good all the time, yeah! And then verse 2. But as for me, can you imagine? Just on a Sunday morning, the worship leader's like, hey guys, isn't God good? Like, yeah! And you're like, not for me. <laughs> I'm depressed. I just, oh, I'm just struggling with people right now. You're like, ooh, okay, oh gosh. <laughs> Is there a mute button? Can we get the sound guy? I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> right after, he's like, yes, I know what to say. But then in Psalm 2, there's this remarkable kind of honesty. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. And let's be honest, we've all been there. We've had bad weeks. Maybe you've had a bad morning. I mean, if you're a parent, trying to get your kids to church is like sometimes a nightmare. Can we talk about this? You're like, kids, I'll give you $5. Just please come to church. <laughs> and then you get into church and the first chord is strummed and you're just like, oh. And the person next to you is like, are you blessed? And you're like, yeah, totally. Remember, these statements are made by someone in the congregation who knows all the right things to say. He hails from the ancient Nashville, you know, of the people of faith, where all the faith songs are written. But he quickly realizes that it's not enough to have some good one-liners if it's not backed up with substance, especially when you face challenges, injustices, contradictions, and difficulties, which he did. And I want you to notice this morning that the story he tells himself is driven by a series of questions. And the first question is one that often shapes the story that we tell ourselves. And it's simply this. What about them? What about those people? All first 12 verses of Psalm 73 are driven by the word, they, them. And here, he asks out loud what we often think when we start contrasting our lives with the lives of others, especially to the arrogant, the godless, the wicked, the people who are not pursuing God. On the surface, it looks unjust. 
But there's more going on in this psalm than just lamenting injustice. Look at what he says in verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why did my feet almost slip? Why did I feel like I had nearly lost my foothold? Notice, it was not just the fact of injustice in the world. He says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says what we often think, why don't I have what they have? And why do they have it so easy? And notice, this is hilarious. Look at how specific he gets. Verse four and five, they have no struggles. Even their bodies, they're healthy and strong. I follow them on Instagram. Like, look at them. They like hate God and like, what? You know those people who you talk to them and they're like, yeah, I eat pizza every day and I lose weight. And you're like, wow, like life must be great for you. I never exercise and I'm healthier than I've ever been. And I hate God. And you're like, what? Wait a minute, no. Like, I love God. I'm trying to follow him. But like, I just sniff a pizza and it's like a thousand calorie. What's the deal? They seem like they escape all the human ills of life. And to make it worse, their behavior doesn't deserve it at all. Verse six and seven. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. To put it simply, I'm not even creative enough to do the evil things they do. Like, look at what they're doing. And yet, their influence seems to grow and everybody drinks it up. Verse eight through 10, preach. They scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They're walking around the world like they own the joint. Verse 10, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They love it. They benefit from them. They're doing all this wickedness. They're insulting heaven, and it just seems like things get better. And to top it all off, they get away with it all. Verse 11 through 12, they say, how would God know? Does the most high know anything? (laughs) Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Now, is it okay to lament the wickedness and injustice that we see in the world? Yes. In fact, the Psalms will help us do that rightly. Having said that, there is also a very unhealthy and even sinful way to do so. And that's why Psalm 73 is so important. Because this is not only a story that laments the injustice of the world. This is the story of envy and comparison. And when that happens... When the story we tell ourselves, when we read the news, we think about everything that's going on right now in the world, and on the one hand, lament the corruption, we also need to be aware of what it is that is happening in our own hearts in the way that we relate to other people. Because when the story that we tell ourselves, the little narrative that we rehearse in our own heart and mind, it can be marked by, when it's driven by envy, notice it can be marked by speculation, and exaggeration. 
All the commentators point this out. See, it is unlikely, is the, can the world be a wicked and unjust place? Of course. But it is unlikely that all the wicked escape all the health problems. Okay, that's an exaggeration. It is unlikely that all the wicked just get completely and utterly filthy rich. Doesn't always happen. Nor does everyone who does violence always get away with it. You know how we always speak in absolutes? You do it when you're arguing, you know, like my kids do it all the time. Like, dad, you always forget to buy the cereal at the store. I'm like, one time, <laughs> once. Or you're arguing with your spouse like, oh, you always think that about me. Like that was literally the first time. <laughs> well, we can do it with God. We can do it before God. God, look at those people. They get away with everything. Nothing afflicts them at all whatsoever. Not a thing. And it just gets better for them. See, this psalm, though on the one hand laments injustice in the world, there's also something unhealthy. He confesses both here at the beginning. He says, I envied them, which is a sin. But also later down in the psalm, as we'll see in a few moments, he said, I was embittered. There was bitterness there. See, just as it is like fear, when we have fear in our own hearts, fear can make other people appear more powerful and us weaker. Envy and jealousy distorts reality. That's what it does. Envy and jealousy and bitterness distorts the way you view things and it makes other people appear happier and more successful than they really are. In some ways, Psalm 73 is an example of judging a book by its cover. It's filled with speculation and exaggeration. This is very important as we try to digest and to process what we see around us in the world. But I also point this out because these statements, though they are made about the wicked, though they are made about those who do oppression and injustice, they also reveal an attitude of the heart that can also affect the way that we view other people in general, even other Christians. Envy can be a problem. Unhealthy comparison to other people can be a problem. It can distort your perspective and really ruin your spiritual health. It's very easy to come into church and just say, man, I'm like praying every day. I'm reading my Bible and, and like I just lost, you know, this source of income. And yet I look at this person at church who goes to reality. It's like they probably haven't read their Bible since like, you know, 2019 or whatever. And like, they're just so blessed. What about them, Lord? What about them? They just seem to get away with it. There's this Christian, they're like compromising, and yet they're blessed. What's the deal? What about them? One of my favorite examples of this comes in the Gospel of John, and it's about the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter famously denied Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed, later on to be crucified. And after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he got all of his disciples together and restored them, even Peter, in this beautiful scene. But even though Peter had just been restored and forgiven and told what his work would be, Jesus told him on that on that morning that he would serve Jesus by leading in his church, but he would also endure suffering. Instead of expressing 
Peter's gratitude for the gracious way in which he had been restored or even asking Jesus how he might be fruitful and faithful in it, he immediately compares himself to someone else. He says in John chapter 21, when Peter saw him, that is John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Oh my goodness, it may be that God wants to speak to us in a very specific area, maybe even convict us of some of our own sin. But then the way that we get out of that, the way that we just kind of bury that is by pointing out the, what we perceive to be the greater sins of our neighbor. The Lord's like, hey, I want to convict you of envy. Yeah, yeah, whatever, Lord. That's like a small sin, lowercase s category. What about them? What about them? We, we, yeah, deal with them. It's your kid, child of God and whatever. Like, deal with them. What about, or maybe they get a ministry opportunity. Somebody you know in the church is given this great opportunity to use their gifts, and everyone's like, oh, thank you. And you're like, oh, well, well, well. Look who gets to use their spiritual gift in the church. Like all of a sudden, everything goes from being vertical to like horizontal. Like what about them? And Jesus, I love his response. He's like, so what if I want John to live forever? What if I wanted him to fly? Like I'm calling you to walk. Follow me. Friends, we need to be honest this morning as we approach whatever the rest of this year brings in the coming seasons, both outside and inside the church. We need to listen to psalms like this because they're a mirror of the soul. How often have we thought like this? The story we tell ourselves is just constant comparison to other people. Lord, what about them? What about her? What about him? Like, what's the deal? This psalm invites us to be honest about this attitude of the heart this morning. But if we're really gonna go deal with this, we must get deeper. If we're gonna avoid this toxic and sinful trap and envy and unrighteous jealousy and covetousness and unhealthy comparison, it's all in that category, we need to get to the source. Behind the question, what about them, is a deeper question. It's the second question that often drives the story we tell ourselves, and it is, what about me? It starts out, what about them? What about them? What about them? And then it goes deeper. What about me, God? And I want you to notice that verse 13 through 14 gets to the heart of the matter and the source of our danger. It says in verse 13 and 14, surely in vain. Have you ever said this? Don't raise your hand. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. In other words, why do I even bother? And why is it so hard when I do? I'm trying to read my Bible, try to pray. I'm here at church on Sunday and this preacher's like yelling at me like, why do I even bother? And why does it get so hard when I do? Make no mistake, friends. This is the story of self-pity, and self-righteousness. And it can happen to any one of us, and it can happen in any and every stage of life. So maybe your, your singleness, and maybe in that particular stage of life, that there's a struggle there. 
Maybe it could even be pertained to your sexuality and whatnot. And it might be very easy and tempting to say, well, all my friends, they're out there sleeping around. Here I am, celebrate. Trying to celebrate celibacy. I, and, but in vain. In vain I have stayed pure because like, what, look at them. What about them? What about me? Maybe you own a business. Maybe the people you work with or work around, they're like cutting corners and yet they're getting pay raises. You're like, what? Like, wait a minute. No, like I'm doing my taxes properly. They're cheating and they're bringing in more money. In vain have I kept my economic and legal integrity. (laughs) Or maybe you're a parent. This happens all the time. Oh, the envy and comparison game. I remember one time talking to a woman, she, she didn't have kids yet. And we were talking about how hard like our weeks can be and I'm dealing with my three kids, you know, and she's just like, oh, you know what I do every week? I just give myself, I treat myself to a spa day. And I just sat there like honestly blank. I think my eye was twitching. I was like, what? What, what is spa day? <laughs> like, what? I don't know what that is, you know. Or maybe there's other parents you know, but they're not Christians. They're not religious. And maybe, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, since we don't go to religious service on Sundays, we have this thing called a weekend. And, oh, yeah, we just, you know, oh, it's no big deal. We take our time to hand make our furniture out of recycled materials and just create and curate artisan meals out of the garden that we tend to on Sundays and sell it back to our community with all the free time we have. And you're like, what? Why do I even bother? Why do I even bother? But in that moment, some of you might even say to me, at least you can have kids. At least you have a job. At least you have a spouse. See, sometimes it's funny when we kind of call it for what it is, but it's also very heavy. These are real experiences that we have, real struggles that we have. And at that point, when we're constantly saying, what about them and what about me, it can be very tempting to give up faith altogether. And maybe some of you are there this morning. Maybe some of you are at that place, just hands raised like, I can't deal with this. Friends, it's one thing to genuinely grieve hardship and difficulty and loss. And the Psalms will help us do that. But in doing so, it also warns us against attitudes of the heart that if they grow, and if they're allowed to grow, they can become so destructive. And two of those things are self-pity and self-righteousness. It's one thing to grieve. It's another thing to allow your heart to become hardened. And as the psalmist says later, bitterness and begin to operate self-pity, out of self-pity. And that's why this psalm is actually helpful because it helps do a a diagnosis on self-pity. So how does Psalm 73 help me to discern whether I'm operating out of self-pity? Well, there's two characteristics here. First, you know you're in self-pity when you magnify your own righteousness. That's what's happening in Psalm 73, he's magnifying his own righteousness. He insists in verse 13 that he is pure and that he's washed his hands in utter innocence. 
Isn't that how it often goes when you're like focused on other people or when you're in that state of self-pity, you're like, I'm doing it right. I'm doing it perfectly right. See, that was the problem we learned in the book of Jonah with the prophet Jonah. He had this self-pity and this self-righteousness. His righteousness was magnified in his own mind. He's like, I'm good. The wicked people of Nineveh, they're the ones who are in need of God's compassion and mercy and love and grace. Like, I'm good. So we need to take note. This psalm helps us detect that one of the marks of self-pity is magnifying your own righteousness. Are you doing that right now? But there's a second characteristic. We know we're in self-pity when we misinterpret our suffering. Assuming that every bad circumstance must be a punishment. Don't you love that line? He's like, every morning brings new punishment. (laughs) You're like, yeah, that's how I feel. Like every morning I get up, flat tire. Well, thanks God for your divine punishment upon me again. Kids are acting out. Oh yeah, Lord, I feel the hand of discipline on me again. Not every circumstance of suffering is a punishment. Sometimes there's mystery. Sometimes it's the actions and behaviors of other people in injustice. But it is wrong for us to assume that every time something bad happens, that it's just a divine punishment upon us. And see, here's why it's concerning. It's toxic and sinful because it assumes that you are qualified to be in the judge's seat and that you have all the facts available to you. That's why it's wrong. You're like sitting in the throne. God's like, get out of my chair. You're like, no, 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 I belong in the chair because I got a case to make. And I know, God, I know that every bad thing that happens to me is a punishment. And I know that the wicked get away with everything. I know that they get nothing but health and prosperity. I know that for a fact. There's a blindness there. And we need to address it. We need to be honest about it if it's in our own hearts this morning. But he doesn't end there. It's as if there should be a pause in Psalm 73, which brings us to another very practical but very important lesson. He felt all this, but he was glad he didn't say it at the time. Verse 15, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. That's interesting. He acknowledges that mere self-expression without some kind of self-discipline or restraint would only infect other people. That's essentially what he's saying. And he did not want to harm the faith of other people. Now this is clear because many of us, especially in our culture, authenticity is king. It tends to be like the highest virtue in Western culture. Like we have to be authentic. And in the name of authenticity, we essentially give ourselves permission to say whatever we think and express whatever we are feeling without any kind of discernment or wisdom or filter of any sort. And it is not good. That's why I love the Psalms. Can you accuse the Psalms of being dishonest? Absolutely not. Totally honest about the experiences of life. Maybe more honest than some of us are willing to be. But it also gives us wisdom. What do I do with the emotion I'm 
feeling? What do I do with the thoughts that I'm thinking? To put it another way, have we thought and stopped and wondered whether it, this is the best and most healthy way for me to process things just by saying it out loud whenever I think it or feel it? Have we ever stopped to learn, like we said last week, that God might have created a save us draft folder for a reason? Now, I think this is important because it does have to do with the impact of our words and what we say and how that might impact others. Now, I don't know about your life verse. You know, a lot of Christians have a life verse. I don't really necessarily have one, but if I did, it would probably be this one. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord, and keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141. Because whenever I get into trouble, it's usually because of my mouth. Like, I'll say something stupid. In fact, for years, when I was pastoring in L.A. for 10 years, there was a sweet woman who was a part of our prayer ministry, and she would pray over me along with others, like, every Sunday before I preached. But one of the things in her prayers was like, Lord, just anoint him and keep him from saying anything stupid today. <laughs> and I was both, like, you know, humbled and, like, kind of a little offended, you know, in the same moment. Every time, every Sunday, Lord, oh, just keep him from saying those stupid things. I'd be like, in prayer, like open one eye. I'm like, uh, what? Like, really? Always? Uh, I guess. But this whole idea of I actually have to think about what it is that I'm going to say and how I'm going to express that is actually the wisdom of the whole Bible, including the New Testament. Look at what the book of James says about the power of the tongue. In James chapter 3, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness when it's unrestrained. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Ooh, James, spicy book. You should read that one tonight before you go to bed. What is James describing? The unrestrained view of our speech. So one of the lessons we take out of the psalm is that we must consider whether stopping and pausing and doing the hard work of questioning the story that we're telling ourselves is necessary. There may be times when there are doubts that are very much a big part of your story and how you're dealing with your current experience, whatever you're going through right now. And on the one hand, I want to say, don't let your doubts surprise you because here's Asaph and he's very honest about it. But I also want to say, don't let your doubts control you. He recognizes that he is in a moment of temptation. And there is this awareness that he must not give his doubts too much credibility or too much control. And you can't accuse him of being dishonest. Again, the Psalms are very honest. But he's also not naive. And this part of the Psalm is a turning point because something happens in the story that he's telling himself. And friends, I want you to notice this. This is important. He doesn't take up his pen to write the first 14 verses of this psalm until he knew the truth of the last 14 verses. He didn't take up his pen to write everything that he's just written in the first 14 verses without the wisdom of the latter 14 verses. This is huge. So what did he do and what was the result? How did he recover from these sinful and toxic and unhealthy attitudes of the heart like self-pity and envy and how can we be delivered from them? Well, we move from asking what about them and what about me to the third question, which is what about God? That's the question I need to be asking. In these agonizing thoughts, which were real, he found relief. 
And we don't know exactly what the answer was, but we know where he got it. And that was the house of God. Verse 16 through 17. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Which, if you think about it, is an interesting statement, the house of God, because it implies that somewhere along the line, he stopped going. Or maybe he wasn't going as frequently as he was. Or maybe he had forgotten what he had learned in the house of the Lord. In any case, it's a reminder for us that spiritual disciplines like coming and worshiping together, hearing the word of God, reading our Bibles, praying with others, oftentimes they're the first thing to go when difficulties come our way, but they should be the first thing we take up when things become difficult. We will wrestle And he didn't deny it. He didn't pretend that he wasn't experiencing these emotions and these thoughts. What did he do? He brought them into the presence of God. So you might be saying, wait a minute, are you telling me to just ignore the feelings that I'm feeling when I look out at the world and the arrogant and the wicked and when I'm, you know, having these honest thoughts towards others? What I'm saying is bring them into the presence of God. Wrestle with them in the presence of God. The answer came as he was engaged in worship. So what was it about that experience that brought health to his heart? There were two things. First, it was the story of divine perspective. Sometimes that's what we need. We need perspective. First of all, it was the long-range view of divine justice that put Asaph back on his feet. For those who reject God, he says, whatever security and prosperity they think they have, it will actually, when I look from God's perspective, it will end and disappear in a moment. And if you're here with us this morning or you're watching online, whatever security and prosperity that you think you can find in this life, if it's not founded on God, it will never save you. And he points that out in verse 18 through 20. Surely, he says of the wicked, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Therefore, things begin to change. He says, wait a minute. The ones who are truly in danger, to put it in our context, the ones who are truly in danger in Ventura are the ones who are trusting in the here and now, who are banking everything on what you can get in this life. If that's you, heed the words of the psalmist. He says, your success, security, or prosperity will turn out to be like a dream. It feels real in the moment, but when you wake up, you can barely remember it because it's gone. And your invitation today is to put your hope and your faith and your trust and to find your security in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we find hope. And it's this reality of eternal judgment that actually kills off his temporary envy. And notice, when he had this perspective, his pity turned away from himself and toward other people. So now when he asks the what about God question, he now is thinking about other people. And he has pity for them, something that Jonah, as we learned in our study, did not have towards the city of Nineveh. But when Asaph goes into the presence of God, he's saying, wait a minute, I was feeling sorry for myself, but now that I see from God's perspective, I'm now concerned for other people because it all begins to change. 
And it also changed the way he saw himself. Before, he's like, I washed my hands in innocence and I was pure. But now, in verse 21 and 22, he says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. That's colorful language. It's his way of saying, I needed to be trained. Confession. He says, I was ignorant. Confession is a part of our healing. We have an opportunity to do that today in whatever sinful, toxic stories we're telling ourselves that we live into without the awareness of God. See, the way to choke out self-righteousness and self-pity is when you realize where you really stand before a most holy God. And when you do that, like, wow, it doesn't matter how you compare yourself to other people. You compare yourself to God, you're like, wow, God is perfect and he sees everything. That means I need mercy. And when God's, knowing that God sees everything, it brings humility. I say that because with a cheap vision of God, we will value the wrong things and we will look to all the wrong solutions. We'll start thinking, oh, I need what they have. Can I have what they have? How come I don't have what they have? And I don't feel like I'm being fully appreciated and all that. We'll move out of that story when we have a greater vision of God. And it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we will see things as they really are and not allow envy and jealousy and strife and bitterness confuse and cloud our vision. But it wasn't only a story of divine perspective, and this is beautiful, it was also the story of divine presence. That's what refocused his heart. He realized, wait a minute, I not only learn about God, God is with me. And that changed everything, verse 23 and 24. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Isn't that beautiful? Earlier, he said, why would I follow God? Now, he's saying, why would I not follow God? Because when you have the best thing, it removes your grasp on lesser things. I would have slipped off the edge, he says, but God held me. Asaph recognizes that God had been with him the whole time, and this changes the story. Friends, this keeps us from banking everything on our present circumstance. His perspective was too small. He realized it wasn't only about the temporary journey, it was also about the destination. Right? Have you heard that phrase, like, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey? Right? Have you heard that? Maybe you have a bumper sticker. Maybe it's your online thing. I might offend you in a moment, but just forgive me. Okay, on the one hand, I understand the purpose of that statement. We're saying, hey, the relationships I build along the way, the, the character I form, like that matters, totally. But it's also totally foolish because it actually also is about the destination, right? You don't like buy a ticket, go on an airplane, and then say to the person next to you when they say, where are you going? You're like, doesn't matter, bro. It's about the journey. You're like, why are you on an airplane? Shh. <laughs> like, what? You're going somewhere. The psalmist needed to know that. Is it about the journey? Yes. God wants to shape you and mold you. Is it also about the destination? Well, let's ask Asaph. That'd be a good series. Ask Asaph. He says in verse 18 through 20, Surely you place them on slippery ground. 
you cast them down to ruin. He's talking about destruction. And then here in verse 24 through 27, afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For those who are far from you will perish and you destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. The destination matters. This is encouraging for those of you who today are willing to take his hand that is extended out to you. This is also sobering for those of you who refuse. The invitation for us all today is to grab hold of his already outstretched hand. And it is with this perspective God's perspective and God's presence that he changes his story. Remember, he started out saying, but as for me, notice he ends his story. But as for me, verse 28, it is good to be near God. Wouldn't that be a great mission statement of our church? (laughs) It is good for me to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge and he's gonna tell a new story. I will tell of all your deeds. Friends, allow the pronouns of Psalm 73 to lead you into worship today. The first section is dominated by they. The middle section is dominated by I. But the end of the psalm is dominated by you, O Lord. And that's where we need to change our story. And today is our opportunity to say, God, it's not them. It's not just me. God, it's you. It's you. A refocus on God will heal us from this unhealthy comparison and self-pity. Why? Because you have the best thing. And how did the psalmist get there? He went into the sanctuary of God. And what did he see when he went into the sanctuary of God? He saw an altar. And what did he see on an altar? He saw a sacrifice. The innocent for the guilty. In other words... The psalmist saw the reason he could belong to God and the cost necessary for it. He knew that I can be confident of God's presence because there's a sacrifice. I'm also reminded of the cost necessary to forgive me of my sins so that I could be with God. And friends, when we come in to the house of God, When we see what the psalmist sees, we see what was ultimately pointing towards all along, and that is Jesus Christ, the true sacrifice for all of our sins. And if there was ever a person in history who could have complained, it was Jesus. Perfect, sinless son of God. Everyone else, fallen, broken. The gospels could have been full of stories be like, idiots, surrounded by, I do everything right. But why was he there? And why did he go to a cross? He offered his innocent life for us, guilty sinners, to pay for our sin once and for all so that we could have not only divine perspective, but the divine presence of God forevermore. That's good news. The assurance, the contentment, the comfort, the perspective that we need right now in whatever circumstance you're in comes from the story of the gospel. And it is the story of the gospel that we must retell ourselves when we're fighting against envy and self-pity and self-righteousness, when we're in the midst of trial and difficulty. 
And when we do, we remember all that Christ has done. And then we can agree with the psalmist and tell a different story to the world. Friends, right now is our moment to respond. We're going to invite you to the carpets. We're going to invite you to pray. We're going to invite you to sing. We're going to invite you to take communion, inviting everyone who believes on Christ to participate. But when you do, I'm asking you to be honest about your thoughts and your heart, but I'm also asking you to be honest about Jesus and everything he's done for you. That means today you can pray, I may be confused, I may be conflicted, and I can't make sense of my circumstances right now, and I'm struggling with envy and jealousy, but nevertheless, I am a beloved child of God through Christ Jesus on my way to glory forevermore. That's the story that you can tell. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would reveal and remove any sinful narrative in our mind. It could be within our marriage. could be within our friendships. could be the men and women that we know in our neighborhoods, through our work, our coworkers, whatever it might be, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that surgery necessary to reveal and to remove that. But that you would also replace it with the beauty of your presence, the promise of your presence that you said you will be with us forever, that you will forgive us and renew us and help us and empower us and guide us so that we don't fall. You're the one who puts us back on our feet. And it's all because of Jesus. And so I pray that we would all right now confess our sin confess these sinful, toxic stories we're telling ourselves, and may they re be replaced with the story of Jesus and what it means for us. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, I pray that right now they would put their faith in Jesus and be saved, that they wouldn't wait another moment, but that they would simply say from their hearts this morning, Jesus, save me. I believe you died on a cross for my sin. I believe you rose again to give me new life. May they do that now and experience forgiveness and salvation. And may you minister to us right now. May we be aware of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, the presence of God is here. We're not asking for God to come. We're asking for him to make us aware that he is. I invite you to respond right now, not just move quickly to what you've got going on in the week, but bringing whatever it is that's going on in your heart into the presence of God. Come down to the carpets. Let's be those people who are both honest and reverent. Like, come down, get on our knees, lift up our hands, say, God, I need you. I need healing. I need perspective. Come, take communion. If you've believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, come and eat the bread and drink the cup as a celebration, knowing that you are forgiven, you are healed. And you can tell of the great and mighty works that he's done. May it be a celebration today as we come and we confess our sin, but also rejoice that our sin is forgiven. Let's do that today. And there are men and women to my right and to my left with the lanyards. They're here to pray with you and for you. Where is it that you need guidance? Where is it that you need strength and encouragement? Where do you need perspective? It could be your marriages and your workplace and your friendship. It could be prayer for someone else. Whatever it is that you have need of for prayer, come and pray with these men and women. Don't hesitate. Make your way past the people in the rows and say, I need God to move and I'm not gonna be ashamed to ask. And as we respond right now, let's just sing with all of our hearts, delighting in the presence of God. Friends, we have the best thing.
And it's celebrating that and rejoicing in that and experiencing that that's going to take our tight grip off of lesser things. Amen? Let's do that now. Let's respond.